word-rooted prayer and worship, keeping your heart close to the flame. And we started the series with about eight messages on prayer and moving now into the, the worship aspect. What should happen when a person meets God? We did part one of this study last Sunday night, and this will finish it this Sunday night. And the text is Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. We get that on worship nights, but it's generated with uh, five. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. Five, and I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, undone in the King James. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, this awareness of, his own sin and the sins, the corporate nature, the disobedience of God's people, and Isaiah is going to be called to confront that. But that revelation of their need for cleansing comes, he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, and it isn't just a moment of blessing. It's a moment of revelation, something that happens in his heart when he sees God. Six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has this, that's that burning coal, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned. See that word? That's what we've been studying in the morning. It's the same word throughout the Bible. Your sin is atoned for. It's not just you're forgiven. Your sin is atoned. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. I did some background work with the text last Sunday night that I won't do tonight about King Uzziah and how he tried to usurp God's place and even set himself in the temple to the role of the priesthood and God struck him with leprosy and I won't go over that again. That'll be online. If it isn't now, it will be very soon. You can see Sunday night from, from last week. We considered two points from this text. The first was that before anything else, worship is being freshly impacted by a throne. I saw a throne high and lifted up. So Isaiah's worship experience isn't really, isn't really a like a cuddly one. This isn't one of those worship courses I just want to give Jesus a hug. It wasn't that. It's stretching and it's stunning and it's very blunt with God's authority. That's what the whole thing seems to smack of. His right to rule everything. Nothing is allowed to compete 
compete with the throne of God. Isaiah sees the throne. This has to be made very practical. When we come and we worship, what are we saying about our lives? Well, values. I have my values. I sort out what's important, what isn't important. Opinions. I've got mine, you've got yours. Moral judgments. What's right, what isn't right. What's fair, what isn't fair. What God should say and what God shouldn't say. Plans. Ambitions. The goals I have for my life. Finances. My material kingdom. None of these, if, if that throne is there and if worship brings me to the throne, none of these things, none of these things is open to my own independent reasoning. All come under the throne. And if you're like me, you need to do it regularly. Worship has to be regular. Corporate worship has to be regular because I need to bring all of those aspects of my life over and over again. The world is such that as soon as I'm out of this place, it trains me to think that I have the right to self-rule. That's what Netflix does. That's what entertainment does. That's what movies do. And so I need to come frequently back and say, there's the throne, and here's everything about my life. I know I did this last week, but that's too long ago. (laughs) It all has to come back. It all has to come back to you again. Our text makes this point really clearly because Isaiah's assignment from that throne, here am I, send me, his assignment is going to be anything but pleasant. Isaiah has to go to God's own people and he has to pronounce God's sovereign judgment on those people. And I'll tell you what, most of those people aren't going to think they deserve God's judgment. The world is the same today. They're going to question God's right to judge them. They're going to say they weren't that bad. Isaiah has to go and confront these people with this divine revelation from the throne. It's all irrelevant. There isn't a bone in Isaiah's body that's naturally inclined to obey this assignment. But Isaiah knows instantly that his wishes don't enter the picture. That's what he means when he says, I saw a throne high and lifted up. You don't know anything about God. You know nothing about God until you see him on a throne high and lifted up. The second point we studied was the need for diligence in corporate worship. Verses 2, 3, and 4, we notice the repetition of the expression of these angelic beings calling out to each other, to one another. They're they're unceasing in their um, dismantling of their own pride of place, covering their faces. It's really important because my natural love for independence never totally fades, and I must continually and deliberately bow before the throne of God. Once in a while, won't cut it. That's that's the idea in this text. Holy, holy, holy. There's no stopping place as they call out to one another. Today, I want to consider two other points, and that review took about almost as long as these points, so don't worry. 
3. Scriptural worship is or ought to be a purifying agent in our lives. The whole process in this text is described in pretty graphic terms because there is no there is no gentle path to a clean life. It ends in joy, to be sure, but is never easy. Isaiah can't reform himself. He can't grow out of his own uncleanness. Five through seven, and I said, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's not just I occasionally say the things I shouldn't say. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean. That's my identity. And I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs. I said last week, it's just so strange to me that this angelic being can't touch the burning coal without tongs, and yet he's going to touch Isaiah's lips with this burning coal. Just strange. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, take note. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Can a burning coal burn away human sin? Not a trick question. Of course it can. What's going on here? This is all looking forward. All look, Isaiah 53 is written by this prophet, the coming one. That's how this is all going to be provided for. This is a picture that he's seeing here. I think it's important to note the obvious that Isaiah is no spiritual slouch. He's a prophet. He used Isaiah to write a book of the Bible. But for all that, because of all that, I I love what I read next. Isaiah, as he sees God, he feels keenly unworthy before God. The text says in Isaiah's own carefully chosen words, he says he he felt unclean. He felt inadequate. Unclean, dirty. That's what unclean means. Can you relate to that? The more I think about it, the more I'm convinced there's a good sense of feeling unclean and there's a bad sense of feeling unclean. The bad sense is when I feel unclean because I don't believe that the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses from all unrighteousness and sustains my forgiveness before God. Of course, that kind of uncleanness, that feeling of uncleanness is basically unbelief. And I don't honor God by minimizing the provision he's made for my cleansing through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But there's also a good sense of feeling unclean before God. It doesn't stem from unbelief. It doesn't stem from doubting God's gracious provision in Christ. But rather, I think there should be, whenever I come before God in worship, there should be the constant awareness that, that I just, I haven't arrived. I'm not done yet. In terms of my pursuit of 
the upward call in Christ. There, there ought to be this, this constant dependence. That might be another way of describing it. I think there's a sense in which if my worship is doing what it's supposed to be doing in my life, there's a sense in which I should still feel incomplete in terms of all that God has plans, had planned for my life. There should still be in my life. So I, I gave my heart to Jesus as best I understood it 60 years ago. And there ought to be a sense in which I'm hungrier for God now than I was then. That's not easily maintained. It gets, it gets very easy to, to rest spiritually. I think there should be a holy restlessness in my pursuit of God. I get that from like Paul's words in Philippians 3.12. This is the Apostle Paul. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I press on. I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. So if you're like Paul or Isaiah, when I come before the throne of God, you you constantly find the need for fresh cleansing. You want fresh grace. You want God's work to go deeper. You you find your hunger for deliverance from every trace of sin. You find that turning into obsession as you live close to the throne of God. And it's intimately tied to the cry and passion of your worship. Here's what I see in this passage. Draw near to God. Focus on his throne, his rule, his kingship. Persist in mindful, passionate, corporate worship. And here's what ought to happen. God will make me, he's faithful to make me aware of the points of need in my life that I don't see just on the surface of things or I don't see with quick self-examination things about my life that need to be rooted out, but but I'm not going to even be aware of them until the eyes of my heart, Ephesians, are opened. That's what worship does. This simply has to happen. It's only natural that the closer I get to the light of God's blazing purity, the more the light of his very being will illumine spots and stains on my own heart. And here's the beautiful side to this text as it's made clear in just a second. These things aren't revealed to God's worshiping children to destroy them or to hurt them. He reveals to deliver them. It's always the beautiful surprise in God's purifying, convicting presence. Worship is tied to power and cleansing. It's not just a divine, mystical nap or an emotional trance. Spiritual work is to be getting done. 
It's almost surprising. You would think that a red hot burning coal placed on your lips. What should that do? Well, it should burn, damage the tissue, and you would think that experience would ruin you, but it's never the case with God's work in our lives. Just just at the very point coming to the throne of God, when I see myself at my worst, just at the point where nothing of my own craftiness or excuse-making remains between a holy God and my sin, right at that point of greatest awareness of need comes wholeness and healing and restoration. Glue your eyes to what's happening in this great text. There's part of holy worship that too frequently gets ignored. It's it's a pathway to restored wholeness before God, true enough. But there's a sequence to this pathway. It ends in holiness, but it doesn't begin in wholeness. Worship is coming to the throne of God and allowing him Hear me. Worship is coming to the throne of God and allowing him to deconstruct all of my own self-dependence and distance from God and self-rule and idols that creep into my heart. Worship is allowing God to deconstruct the old self. This is different from deconstructing your faith, which is a fancy psychological term for backsliding. This is the kind of deconstruction that the Spirit of God wants to do in every person in this room when we come to worship the Lord. He wants to, he wants to show you where you're undone and you don't know it yet. And then he wants to bring wholeness in that same experience. But notice, first Isaiah says, Woe is me. And then it ends with, here am I, Lord, send me. Four. Oh, by the way, why, why did the angelic being touch Isaiah's lips? Was he perfect in every other part of his being? I don't, I doubt it. Why did he touch his lips? Well, God God goes to work. God goes to work at the point of Isaiah's confession. Do you see it? God makes him aware. Isaiah confesses, agrees with God, admits, examines, and admits. And at the point of his honesty, his openness, his confession before God, at that point, the angel comes. Your sin is atoned for. Think honest thoughts about your own heart when we worship. I know they would agree with me. Don't focus on the lighting or the band or the coolness of the song. Look into your heart. Make make the words of certain songs, make the words of the song your own confession to the Lord. Don't just repeat what you read on the screen. Make them an expression of your heart. 
so that spiritual work gets done. You'll come to some point. It might not be your lips. It might be something else. But as you're worshiping and confessing and God speaks and you go, oh, how could I have said that, Lord? How could I have wasted the day doing that? How could I spend so much money on something that doesn't matter? Oh, God, come and cleanse me. And at that point of confession, God comes and does a spiritual work while we're worshiping. Why else do we worship? We don't need to just fill in time. We we want God doing something in our hearts. And that's what this text is all about, how that happens. Last point. Through worship comes fresh fire for ministry. Six, no, seven and eight, verse seven and eight. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I said, here am I. Send me. Where does strength for ministry come from? What is it that fuels long-standing service to the Lord with spiritual life and vitality? Well, of course, there needs to be a lot of things. There needs to be knowledge and understanding. Paul talks about the uselessness of faith and zeal when it's not accompanied by understanding. Well, there needs to be training in ministry. Anything you and I do for the Lord should be sharpened by our best efforts that we can produce the best experience we can glean from others. Practice is necessary. Whether you preach or usher or sing or play, you'll improve as you use the ability that God gives. That just makes sense. Many people drop out of ministry, never staying with it long enough to find the freedom in what they do, simply because... They quit. Whatever ministry they found, they quit before they found a fluency in doing it that could have been a joy, but they quit too soon before they really found their stride. But there's something else on top of all those ingredients. You, you, you need whatever you're doing for the Lord. You need to come regularly to that throne of God. You need to allow him to deconstruct your self-life repeatedly with diligence, with passion, with confession, with thoughtfulness, with corporate worship. Notice how passive Isaiah really is in this text. All he does is come to the throne, confesses all that he isn't. Isaiah listens and he obeys. God and his angels do everything else. There's one thing I've proven over and over again in dozens of times of just stress and fatigue in my own ministry. It's this, that good worship, good worship, thoughtful worship, Biblical worship sharpens ministry, fuels ministry. It has nothing to do with an emotional tickle. 
but it does add God's fire to everything else you do in preparation and service. Everybody knows life can be demanding, spiritual life even more so. We mustn't glamorize this text. Years back, I said last week, years back we used to sing that missionary chorus taken from some of these words, here am I, send me to the nations. But the plain fact of the text is God was calling Isaiah to do the last thing in the world that Isaiah wanted to do. That's what was happening here. And sometimes God still does that. You won't always respond favorably to the call of God without the preparation and cleansing of your heart that worship before the throne of God can bring. Worship gets you ready for God's call. Isaiah needed this vision of God on the throne because God wasn't calling him to just evangelize the lost. Read the last part of this chapter and you see God was calling Isaiah to pronounce judgment, irreversible judgment on his people and nobody embraces that call and nobody wants to hear it from anybody that delivers it. But the lesson is still precious. Whatever God calls you to do, worship before the throne with the people of God will help prepare you for doing it. That, that, that places the context of biblical worship, I hope you're getting this, on a totally different footing. It really isn't about feeling blessed, though at times that certainly will happen. God is very refreshing. But worship isn't primarily about getting blessed. It's more about establishing a clean heart and availability for service. That's what God wants to do in all of our lives in times of worship. Stay before the throne of God. What I'm talking about here is not a charismatic thing or a Pentecostal thing. It's a Bible thing. It's a God thing. Set your heart on honoring the king. Let worship bathe your being in the sovereign will of Father God, and he will give you the strength to do whatever he calls you to do. I want to be in a church. I want to be in a church where when we worship God, spiritual work gets done in our hearts. We, we ought to become cleaner people as a result of worship because God ought to be revealing in our hearts where we're undone. We ought to be confessing those things while we worship. And we ought to be responding to his call on our lives. And there's just no telling what God can do in a worshiping church like that. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll bless this teaching to our hearts, these four thoughts about worship, they aren't complicated, but they are transforming because they come from your word. We love being in your house. Virtually 100% of the churches in York Region are locked up and closed tonight. And we have a chance to come and worship God on the throne. And so touch us with your grace and your cleansing presence, your revealing, cleansing, restoring presence as we bow before you in the name of Jesus. 
That's your prayer. Say amen.